If you have your Bibles, 1 John 4, 13 to 21. We're continuing in our series. We're almost at the last chapter. You've done amazing so far. We're not quite there yet. Let's read these passages, uh, this passage together. There John writes, and we read, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his Brother, this is the word of the Lord for us today. I was tempted there for a moment to read the first passage, like Daniel read the passage last week, and try to like do that whole thing again, uh, but I don't quite have uh, the guts that Daniel had last week. I was terrified. I want to confess that. When Daniel was reading it very slow and, and you know, sort of unimpressed last week, I was terrified. But of course, there was a point. I should have trusted. Well, I, I want to begin this morning by making an, a bit of an admission uh, that for most of my life, I've been uh, afraid of the dark. Most of my life. Uh, my fear got so bad that at times, I would go many nights uh, without sleeping, nervously analyzing each sound I was hearing, trying to discern if that sound was from friend or foe. And as I wrestled through my fear of the dark, I have found one thing, one thing to be effective in driving my fear away. Just one thing. And it's this. The presence of someone else. The presence of someone else. If someone else was in the room with me growing up, my dad or my mom or a sibling or a friend, and they were awake, they were present, I could go to sleep. I, I could relax. And really, it was a weird thing to consider. Uh, Logically, I was no safer because I fell asleep before that other person. And really, if the intruder had a gun, as they so often did in my nightmares, this other person would be powerless against them. But none of that seemed to matter to me. What mattered was the assurance of safety that came from the presence of someone else. Have you ever felt assurance through presence before? Maybe you're not like me. Maybe you've never been afraid of the dark. But you have found yourself in a hospital waiting room before, waiting to receive the results of some test you just did. 
And while nothing the doctor or your spouse could say would change how you feel, you could find assurance that things would be okay in their being present, in them holding your hand, stroking your back, kissing your head. That presence made all the difference in that moment. There is something about assurance that requires presence. And if we're being honest, it's one of the reasons this whole season has been so difficult. Unable to pick up on body language through Zoom, right? We're unsure if our friendship is really as strong as it once was. We're unsure if I'm still an able communicator through this mediated platform, right? We need presence. No matter how many times you write that email in this season, the recipient is inevitably going to be unsure that the serious issues you're addressing are really truly brought up from a place of love. Why? Because you're not there to reassure them that you love them and you care about them. For there to be assurance, there must be presence. And this holds true for the most important question we could ever ask. What's more important than asking if that's an intruder shaking the doorknob or whether the blood test will reveal a horrible diagnosis? It's this. The most important question we could ever ask is this. How do we know that we're saved? How do we know we're saved? How do we know that Jesus really loves us and will keep us forever? Or, or if that's too churchy language for you, how do you know that all is well between you and the universe? That all will work out for your good? How do you know? How do you know, Christ City? See, this is the question John will put before us today. And to our anxious souls in need of assurance, John does not offer rational deductions or quotable maxims. No, John offers presence. And specifically, we'll see this. First, the presence of God. The presence of God. Second, seen through the presence of love. So the presence of God seen through the presence of love. And then thirdly and finally, resulting in the presence of confidence. Let me do that one more time. The presence of God seen through the presence of love resulting in the presence of confidence. If you have your Bibles, look at 1 John chapter 4 and let's read verses uh, 13 to 16 again. And notice in these four verses, three members of the Trinity, all three members of the Trinity make an appearance. Read this with me. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Just a note, we find that phrase, Savior of the world, twice in the New Testament, once here, once in John's Gospel. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. 
Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. Let's stop there for now. John once more begins this section with this phrase, we know, we know. And it might be a worthwhile exercise to go back this week and highlight all the time so far, John has said, we know. This is the 12th time in this letter John has used this phrase, we know. And, and spoiler, he'll use it five more times in the fifth chapter alone. We know, we know. He said, for example, this, we know or we can be assured that we know Jesus if we keep his commands. He said, we can be assured that we're in the final days. He's said, we can be assured that at Jesus' coming, we'll be like him. And he said, we can be assured that if we pass from death to life, if we love the church. He said, we can be assured that love is defined through the sacrificial death of Jesus. John gives us all these points of assurance and more. There is so much assurance in this one letter. But if we can time out for a second and be very, very honest, and I could be very, very wrong here, but I don't know if anyone on this call right now, if anyone listening right now was looking to be reassured about any of those things, and I could be wrong, but I don't know if anyone, myself included, was looking to be reassured about the things that John is eager to reassure us about. Again, if we're honest, and maybe this is just me, we say things like this. Those are nice spiritual reassurances or religious reassurances. But frankly, I have more pressing things I need to be reassured about right now. For example, I need assurance that I'll still have a job in a few weeks' time. I need assurance that we're going to get out of this pandemic soon, that the vaccine is going to work, that my workplace won't be closed down. I need assurance that my kids are going to be okay that my marriage is going to endure this rough patch, that my friends haven't all left me over this last year. I need assurance about those things. Those are the questions we're asking. And it does no good to pretend otherwise. These are the reassurances we want. And so here's the real question or the big question. Why is the assurance I want so different from the assurance John and God wants to give us in this letter? Well, Jesus tells us in the most famous sermon ever preached. Jesus is speaking to an anxious crowd, a crowd anxious about most of the things that we're anxious about, a crowd anxious about employment, provision for their family, a crowd anxious about their, their future. And, and Jesus, as he's preaching to this crowd, his solution to their anxiety is not to ignore their problems or pretend like their problems don't exist, but rather he exhorts the crowd 
to prioritize their desires, to set in their hearts a hierarchy of loves. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 33, from the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. you. In other words, Jesus says, listen, your problem is not that you don't have a heavenly father who won't provide for you, because you do. And he cares about you, and he sees all your needs, and he longs to meet those. No, your problem, ultimately, if we can borrow language from elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, is that you are more concerned, more in love with the cares of this world than you are with my kingdom and my righteousness. And so again, maybe you've been tracking with John's assurances, and this whole section is not for you. But if you're like me, let me invite you into my conviction this week and see if the Spirit has something to say to you as well. If the assurances that John has given us thus far in this series are not sweet to you, are not bedrocks for you, maybe you've replaced your appetite or maybe you're in fact built your life on things that are contrary to God. Things of this world, again, not unimportant things, but things that are lower down on the hierarchy. See, today, John says we can be assured and we ought to erupt in celebration that we abide in God and God in us. This is the union language John has been using throughout this letter. He says, we can be assured of this union because, did he catch it? All three persons of the Trinity are actively at work bringing us into that relationship, keeping us in that relationship, allowing us to enjoy that relationship. The Spirit of God indwells you. The Son is the one who saved you. And together, the Son and the Spirit bring us into relationship with the Father, with God. See, in your salvation, the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, are at work. Yes, it is the Son who is called here the Savior of the world, but we cannot forget the whole story. And if you're new to Christianity, you're new to thinking about things of faith, here in 10 seconds is the story of salvation in the Bible. Having chosen us before the foundations of the world, the Father sends the Son. The Son makes payment for the sins of those chosen by the Father. And it is through the Spirit that this salvation is applied to us. See, He, the Spirit, makes us new, as Daniel talked to us about last week, regenerates us. And he makes new precisely those who the Father chose and for whom the Son died. The story of salvation in the Bible is a story of the triune God working together to rescue you and me, to bring us into relationship with him. It's amazing. This is the love we receive. 
And this is the love that John has in mind when he says in verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Now listen, I think you can make the argument in this verse to better translate for us to the love that God has in us. And here's the difference that for us and in us makes. See, God loves us by giving us his very presence. He doesn't simply do something for us, though he does do something for us, but ultimately he gives us his very self. He is in us. It is love through presence. We don't get the topped up bank account. We don't get that house down the street we think we want or need or deserve. We don't get blissful, carefree existence. We don't get things the way we want them, when we want them, at the time we want them. No, God gives us his very presence. And it is this presence that despite what we feel is the very assurance we need in the middle of our darkest nights. That's point one. Now, we wouldn't be reading 1 John if John did not take this big, lofty theological idea and bring it right down to earth for us. He's going to make it very, very, very practical for us. Point one was the presence of God, and point two, seen through the presence of love. We're going to skip verse 17 to 18. We're going to read verse 19 to 21. Look there with me now. There John writes, and we read, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, friends, hear the clear words of John. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In saying that God's love, if it is truly God's love, must be manifested in love for the other, John is, is treading well-worn ground in this letter. It seems like each week, this is one of the points in each sermon, doesn't it? It feels that way to me, at least. We have heard this repeatedly. But there are a few things unique to our text this morning that I want us to zero in on. To, to clarify, and the first thing is this. Righteousness in our lives will always be the result of knowing that God loves us. Let me say that again. Righteousness in our lives will always be the result of knowing that God loves us. John said, we love, very simply, because he first loved us. There's a, a great biblical scholar named Bruce, uh, Bruce Waltke, um, godly man, used to teach locally here at Regent College. And in the classes he teaches, not only does he give a really good like uh, scholarly insight in the text, but he also gives these sort of pastoral nuggets 
this pastoral gold. And one of the things he said in one of the classes that he was teaching, and I've heard this story secondhand, was that the Apostle Paul, and I think we can widen this to include John, but the Apostle Paul and other New Testament writers uh, are much better theologians than the average jazz singer. Now you're like, I don't understand what that means. Let me explain. It's a bit cheesy, but I think Waltke is onto something here. Waltke says that the average jazz singer sings or says, doobie, doobie, do. Doobie, doobie, do. Paul says, and John says here, be, do, be, do, be. Do you see that? It's not doobie, doobie, do. It's be, do, be, do, be. And that's the closest I'll get to singing in a sermon ever. But do you see the difference? Literally everything in our life says in order for you to become someone or something of worth, you must do something, right? It's not enough for me to just stand here and declare to you, I am a 10-time NBA all-star. And you're like, that is definitely not true, right? I must do something, namely be born again with different genetics in order to become that. But the preposterous notion of Christianity is that we can say something much more grandiose than I am a 10 times NBA all-star. We can say, I am a child of God. I am united to the triune God himself, not because I have done something, but because he has loved me. Because he has done something. Because he has transformed my identity. Because of what he has done, I can now do. Because Christians do. We do. But we do from being. And if 1 John has been a frustration to you because you feel like your doing life is stunted and not happening and, and still a battle, first off, Jesus has not returned. There's time. But maybe, maybe you've got it backwards. Righteousness, loving, sacrificial action towards others in our lives is first the result of knowing that God loves you. That God loves you. Receiving the love of God. The second thing we need to see about love for others in this text and this will sound very obvious, and it's meant to sound very, very obvious, is that loving is not optional. John writes this, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, again, I want us to see the plain language John uses. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here's the simple logic that John is employing. It's harder to love someone you can't see like God. So if you can't even walk the easier path of loving the person whom you can see and you can touch and you can know, why do you think that you will be able to walk the more difficult path of loving an invisible God. And in case that's not clear, 
John sums up basically the whole book in verse 21 by saying, and this is the commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother, in case you didn't catch that. All this should lead us to conclude that loving the other is not optional, which again sounds really obvious, especially at this point in the series, but this was very, very hard for me this week. Just because it's obvious doesn't mean it's easy. Just because it's obvious doesn't mean we're good at it. Have you had a week, have you had a week where you felt like you were fighting people on all fronts? North, south, west, east. Where you felt like whatever you did, you were being met with opposition, ignorance, carelessness, anger, maliceness. And if you're like me, you can very quickly have these two growing categories in your mind. There's the good guys. Of course, I'm over here with the good guys. Me, Jesus, Mother Teresa, right? Other good guys and gals. And over here are the bad guys, right? Those people. There's the good guys, and then there's the bad guys. Now, none of this is to say that there is no right or wrong, or there's no good or bad, or there's not things that we should fight for. But here's the deal. It's only to say this. The love of God is only truly the love of God in my life if I have love for those who are opposed to me. It's so simple. It's so obvious. It's so basic to our faith that we must hear it again. If the love of God really dwells in us, then it is manifested, it is seen in love for our enemies. In my community group this past week, which by the way, if you're not in a community group, you should be in a community group. You need to be connected in this season. In my community group this past week, we were reading uh, from Romans 5. And there Paul summarizes the love that God has for us. And he reminds us what we've received by saying this in Romans 5 verses 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Listen to what Paul says, and he's so right. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though, right, perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, right? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love of enemy is what distinguishes Christian love from all other small L loves that exist in this world. And if we do not have love for enemy, like I lacked this week, there is nothing particularly Christian about our love. And so yes, love all people. Love the easily loved people on this Zoom call. Love the lovely people in your neighborhood. But especially love your enemies. Because if we don't love our enemies, can we really say we have the love of God seen in Christ's death for the ungodly living in us? And the answer is no. John says we are liars. So here's our last point. The presence of God seen through the presence of love and now resulting in the presence of confidence. Look at verse 17 to 18 with me. These are oft-quoted verses because they're good verses. By this is love perfected with us. 
that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Then John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I want to be very clear what John's saying in this passage. The indwelling love of God finds its fullest expression not only in loving others, but in producing in Christians a profound internal confidence that on the last day when Jesus returns, you and I, who are united to God, have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. See, fear, as John talks about it here, has to do, he says, with judgment and punishment. We believe Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. And the Christian on that day has nothing to fear. That's the fear that John is talking about. Why? Because John says specifically here, as he is, so also are we in this world. Here's the translation. Although we're in the sinful world with its temptations, nevertheless, We do not belong to the world. But listen to what this commentator says. We stand in the same relationship to God as that of Jesus to his Father. John is downloading for us mind-blowing theology. Mind-blowing truth. And so I have to ask this morning, the obvious question this morning is this. Is fear your first response to the question, How do I know I will be saved? When I asked that question 20 some odd minutes ago, maybe 30 some odd minutes ago at this point, was fear your first response? Does the thought of death and judgment and eternity, does it cause you to lay awake at night like it used to for me? If that's you this morning, if fear of judgment is what occupies your heart, then the answer is so beautiful and so simple. Put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Jesus, the Savior of the world. Put your hope and your desires, indeed all of who you are, in Jesus and allow him and his love to drive out any fear of judgment. When you put your faith in Jesus, not only do you have assurance surrounding the questions that really matter, you get that assurance by way of presence. Paul says it this way, when we trust in Jesus, we get hope. He says in Romans 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You don't get hope in some abstract way. You don't get hope in some abstract sense. Paul says you get it through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You get God himself. You get his presence. 
Friends, you need not wonder if you are good enough anymore. You're not. You're not. And I'm not. But true Christianity says, if you trust in Christ, his perfect love invades that space, occupies that space, once lived in by fear. How? Through being joined to God himself. It is assurance through presence. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love you. And as we stand and sit and recline wherever we are around this city, we acknowledge that you are present with us by your Spirit. You have not just given us words to read, but you've given us your very Spirit to understand those words, to be warmed by those words. We're so thankful that in our dark nights, when fear, anxiety are so crippling, you yourself come to us and are with us. We love you. Amen.